So welcome to the FTSQ podcast series celebrating nonconformists. Uh, today we're interviewing the lovely Chris Davis from Wicked Waste. Welcome, Chris. Good afternoon. Hi, Lena. Nice to be here and, yeah, should be good fun. Well, look, the, uh, the way we're going to do this is we're going to go through a few questions. So before we talk about you, it would be good to get your thoughts on what you consider a nonconformist is. Nonconformist. Um, I've given this quite a lot of thought, actually, recently. Nonconformists, to me, are people who think outside the box most of the time. We tend not to be sheep. And although some of us, some, some people do think of us as sort of slightly anarchic kind of people, we tend to be the creative sort of people. You know, your average person basically gets up in the morning, goes to work, does their job, comes home, watches the telly, goes to bed. And they just repeat it. Where myself and, and some of my friends and that, we, we live very sort of eclectic lives. You know, we're up and down. We, we sleep funny hours. We work funny hours. We have brain waves, and, and we, you start creating something at 2 o'clock in the morning, and we work all the way through it until we get an end result. And then we go to bed, probably get yeah. up, and so we do it and do it all again. It's, it, it can be quite a, a sort of a mad life at times. Yeah, it's definitely that way. <laughs> we quite like a mad life. <laughs> I, I certainly do, and I know for a fact that mm. uh, my – my way of working and timing and all the rest of it, yeah, pretty much the same. It's definitely not, definitely not nine uh, to no, five. No, definitely not. <laughs> so, um, so, look, tell us a bit, of, a bit more about yourself. You sort of were you always uh, were you always different from those around you? Um, I want to hear about your life story. Yeah. You know, those significant okay. milestones, moments, well, that journey. I, I can sort of say, I mean, I, I've known a lot of mad situations. I mean. When I was seven months old, I um, my my mum and dad let me wander around the caravan, and I burnt my fingers on electric fire. The best one at the time when I was very young was four years old. I walked something like we think somewhere between nine and ten miles from where I used to live in Northfleet to my nan's house, which was also in Northfleet, but it was right over the other side of the county. Um, and that was at the age of four, <laughs> without my mum knowing. She thought I was outside playing, and I legged it. So yeah. Um, most kids probably wouldn't do it, but I did. I've got a partial photographic memory in that I can't read text. I can't remember it easily, but you show me something visual and I'll remember it till the day I die. And it served me really well all my life. Um, I can remember faces. A lot of the time I can put names to them. And I, I've got a sort of an, an almost inbuilt video camera in my eyes in the sense that I can see things and you just remember it. And it, it's brilliant. Later life... Which is quite interesting, considering that you you are now blind, which is one of the things that is, is yeah, that unfortunately. <laughs> but obviously, as a result of that, there's still a good memory in there, which is pretty amazing. So, tell, tell me about your family life. Well, um, my mum and dad come from sort of Northfleet Gravesend area. I was born in 1966. Not much to say. I've got a sister who's uh, 18 months younger than me. How can we put it? If I said to you, my mum and dad used to play rent. Um, they used to play poker with the rent money. <laughs> you possibly get some idea of what my mum and dad were like. They had a little clique of friends and that where we used to where we grew up, and and they all sort of mucked in together and helped each other out. But Friday nights was poker night, and they all used to gamble with the rent. So yeah, it was quite interesting at times. Um, my mum and dad didn't have a great deal of hold over me as a child. If I wanted to do something, I would go and do it. I'd probably get walloped for doing it, but I did it anyway. So I got used to getting thumped quite a bit. 
and and as I sort of grew up, you know, I went to an old fashioned Church of England school initially as a primary school, and you know, um, we as kids we did things you probably wouldn't do now. They let us experiment and do stuff, painting, playing at the playground doing stuff we did all sorts of things when we were children and and it served me well all my life but it it made me realize that if you follow what society says or if you follow people like that yeah you 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 never get anywhere in life you never really experience anything and all throughout my childhood and my my sort of teenage years it's been like that you know i mean i used to get caught dressing up quite a bit because obviously i'm trans my nan is uh, or was ex Air Force, and she moved from a very large house into a smallish council house. And somehow, I don't know how she crammed everything in, but she had debutante ball gowns and things like that, and all the the accessories that went with it. And me and my sister used to spend a lot of time dressing up in her gear at times. My mum and dad, my dad wasn't around because he was working, but my mum used to seriously disapprove of it. My nan thought it was quite amusing. Yeah, she always said I had a good pair of legs, so she was quite amused. <laughs> Yeah, she. I mean, when my mum wasn't around, she said to me, "If you want to go upstairs and muck about, go and do it." She she really wasn't bothered, and most of my other aunts were like that. They they saw no problem with it. My mum, she used to get seriously stressed out about it, but you know, so what? <laughs> it made me who I am. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think it's quite interesting that as a as a trans person, that mm. um, that was. At the time, it would mm. have been quite unusual for a family to, mm. especially yeah. you know, aunt, yeah. grandmother, and so be I mean, as supportive. I, as it is yeah. unusual. Yeah, I mean, if, if you think I was dressing up in in 1972 and 1973, so it was a long time ago, and and back then, obviously, you had people like Bowie and Mark Bolan on the telly, you know, top of the pops. And my favourite's always been the Sweet because the suite was so camp, it was ridiculous. They they really were brilliant. I mean, you know, lipsticks and, and moustaches with German tin helmets were brilliant. Yeah. It's sort of, <laughs> it was barking mad. But, you know, I, I grew up in that era of glam rock and all that bits and pieces with satin jumpsuits and, and leather trousers. And, you know, it, it had a marked effect on me. And also, you've got to remember, by the time I was roughly 10, 11 years old, we were in the midst of the punk era. So, and punk was just something that I thought, this is something I actually belong to. Yeah. And it, it always seemed to me that they weren't judgmental about what you look like because the punks looked so different anyway. It didn't really matter whether it was male or female. You could get away with it. And I did. And yeah, you know, my parents totally disapproved of it. But as far as they were concerned, so long as I didn't do it around them or anywhere near them, they weren't bothered. <laughs> so. Yeah, no, it's interesting. The punks, I guess, were quite quintessentially non-conformist, I suppose, at, at the heart of them. As you said, though, more uh, anarchy mm. than, than just non-conformity, I suppose. But um, Yeah, it was a bit more anarchi- yeah, anarchistic in, in that way, I suppose. But, yeah, I, I remember from, like, I, I sort of, I inhabited, I can't say I worked because I was too young at the time, but I did inhabit Camden at the time. And there was, was a lot of punk and skinheads, unfortunately, running around. And and they were two ends of a different spectrum. And the skinheads were more the anarchists. The punks were more show-offs. I mean, most of the punk was, was about looking at me, you know, sort of, you know, we were wearing rubber, leather and PVC sort of clothing and bright coloured hair and that. And it was more about sort of posers. I suppose, in a way, it was just showing off. But it was in such an extreme form, it used to scare the living daylights out of some people. 
<laughs> I mean, I remember trying to help. I, I, it really was a case of trying to help a little old lady across the road, and she's going, no way, you're not touching me. You don't come near me. <laughs> you know, it, it was like, mm, go away, you're, you're weird, you're a freak, and, you know. But it was quite funny. But I must admit, um, at the time, I remember in the late 70s, early 80s, a lot of the tourists were fascinated by us because there were lots of Americans and Japanese tourists who used to come over to Camden. And they would wander around and they'd be waiting to find some punks coming out of a pub or one of the cafes or whatever. And as soon as they found us, it's like, oh, can we take pictures of you? And be loads of us until the skinheads turned up. And then it was like, quick, run. <laughs> yeah. It's not easy to run when you've got a pair of trousers on with your legs strapped together at the back. What a man! Yeah. So, um, so tell me, tell me about being sort of a non-conformist in, during your school times. How was that? School days were both good and bad. I had quite long waist-length hair when I was at school, which in all boys' school was not acceptable. Although they wouldn't, they they used to moan at my dad to get me to get my hair cut, but I wouldn't. So I had a ponytail at school, which was the only thing they accepted. And you know what ponytails are like? People run up behind you and grab it. I got yanked a few times. I, I got a very thick skin very quick when I went to secondary school. Also, unfortunately for me, we used to do a lot of drama at secondary school and I can walk in heels. And the other kids used to notice it. And it was like, how come you can walk in five-inch stilettos and none of us keep falling over? So well, it's your problem, not mine. But of course, I used to get a lot of grief for it. Also, I'm physically, I'm quite sort of tall, but slim. And most of them are sort of butch, stocky sort of kids. And I just didn't fit the mould. And I was always getting into trouble. So much so that our upper school headmaster had me in a um, commerce lesson that we used to do once a week. And he had all the troublemakers, including me, because although he didn't consider me a troublemaker, it was, he was trying to keep me out of trouble. <laughs> so I got to know some of the, the reprobates at school. And, and it stood me in good stead because it makes you more aware of what's going on. You know, I used to get bullied quite a lot at school until the point me and a, a guy who became my best friend, we were flicking towels at each other in the swimming baths. Um, when we'd been on a lesson and I flicked him and it hurt so he flicked me back and then next thing you know it ended up in a punch we we had a major punch up and um yeah we had four teachers pull us apart and (laughs) from that moment on which I was about 13 at the time all the other kids gave me a wide berth after that (laughs) they wouldn't come near me because they they sort of went from thinking I'm gay sissy type sort of kid to you can fight and you fight dirty. <laughs> We're going to leave you alone. So. It's an interesting uh, theme that I've been picking up uh, mm. talking to a lot of uh, non-conformists is, is mm. the bullying thing. And yeah. obviously if you were able to stand up for yourself, that obviously helped uh, Yeah, quite it did a lot. A lot. Yeah. Mm. So, so how did that then flow on into into university and, and all those kinds of things and moving well, what happened was I, I was I used to work as a panel beater um, through through most of the late eighties, early nineties. Um, I used to buy and sell and restore cars. I'd done crash repairs, and then I went out on my own, um, self-employed, and I used to buy and sell cars, classic cars, and all sorts of things. And then, um, unfortunately, we get to ninety six, and my eyes were starting to muck around quite a bit. At that point, I could still see straight. I got to my 30th birthday and I decided that this wasn't going to work much longer. Um, I had a problem with a couple of guys at work and I had a near miss in a car at work. We, we sort of um, 
we nearly collided with each other, but we we'd agreed it was both a bit of each of us. It was 50-50. So I sort of said, I'm going to surrender the driving license and sort of see what I can do. So at the age of 30, I decided to go back to college and learn pattern cutting properly, which I've been making clothes since I was seven years old. And I used to frequent sort of various nightclubs and things and that and do a little bit of, I wouldn't call it drag because it wasn't, but it was a little bit of sort of mucking about and things like that. Um, so 96, I went back to college, to Bexley College and learned pattern cutting. And then from that, I gained a BTEC National Diploma in Fashion Technology and Design. And then the lady there, Jenny Spiby, she, she asked me if I wanted to sort of push it further and get a degree. So I applied to Kent Institute of Art and Design, or CIAD, and got in. And that's where I met Fiona, my, my partner. She's my partner and business partner. And then it went from there. And I spent another, in, in total, I spent six years at college doing fashion design and technology. And yeah. So what a significant milestone for you, that whole mm. uh, period of time, moving from having been the panel beater mm. and car restorer to uh, going back to university well going to university completely changing direction and meeting fiona and deciding to take this new career path Mm. how did that how did that feel it was a hell of a jump at the time (laughs) to go from what everything i knew and i had to sort of not so much give it up but i i had to then get my head around going back to college or university and you've got all these youngsters running around and i'm 30 years old so i was classed as a mature student and thinking i've got a single-minded goal which was learn how to do pattern cutting and that i could sew and i've got all these kids running around and they hadn't got a clue half of them and some of them could sew, some couldn't and then Fee was a sort of a beacon in amongst all of that lot because she could sew and she understood pattern cutting to a degree. So we gelled almost immediately. I mean, we'd only been at college about uh, around about six to eight months. And then we worked on a project together and I thought, this is someone I could work with. Um, she kept pinching my samples. So, <laughs> you know, I, I had latex samples and PVC samples everywhere because I'm one of these people, I collect stuff. And everybody else was like, They've got a couple of bits and pieces of pattern material and that, and, and I've got a bag full. And Fee's going through my bag going, oh, I like that. I left that one. Right, I, lo- I like that. <laughs> it was like, wait, give us it back. And we hit it off from there on and, you know, we gelled and we worked on all our projects together and that's sort of really how we came about, you know. But hence the beginning of Wicked Waste starting and the whole – uh, creations that you started to make. What was it about clothing that you really loved? What What was it about that? Basically, what it is is, I I'd spent most of the eighties and the early nineties dressing up, and I I love PVC clothing anyway. I love the look of it from the punk days. But the problem is, the companies that used to make it in this country was was a, a company called Sheer Me. The thing is, I'm I'm a tallish person. You know, I'm six foot tall. And although Sheer Me stuff looked good, it never fitted down the back. This is the problem. I'm too long in the body. So I, I, I found out where to buy the PVC and then made it myself. Problem is, if I made myself costumes, people used to nick them. So I thought, there's a job in this. There's, there's a business to be made out of this. Also, I noticed that not all of their stuff was that well made. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I'm sure we can do better because, you know, just the finish of it wasn't that great. And I thought, they're preying on people in a sense. They charge quite a lot of money for the outfits, but they're not that well finished because they're hoping that people won't notice and they won't bother to come back. Yeah. So I thought I can do better. 
So that was the whole premise for going back to college was to learn how to do the pattern cutting and make decent quality clothes that were reasonable price. And that's where we've got to. Yeah. But so the, need, it, the need was your own, which is quite interesting. Mm, yeah, in a way. I mean, I, I wanted to look stylish and I wanted to look decent, but, you know, most of the stuff that was on on sale at the time was more for sort of aimed at the bedroom department, and it wasn't the sort of stuff you'd wear you'd want to wear down a local high street. I mean, not, <laughs> you'd get a hell of a reputation, but even those sort of ladies won't wear that. So <laughs> it was like, mm. so you know, I don't, think, I don't think people could have even got away with it in a, a, a place like Camden, let alone Kent. <laughs> no. Little little story short. Um, I did work in Camden for a bit, and um, one outfit I had, and I'd forgotten, I had a clear plastic dress, which is normal sort of dress, but it was clear plastic, see-through, and I'd got a really nice sort of outfit, bra and knickers and suspenders on underneath, which were purple, and I'd done my little shift, and in lunchtime, I'd gone walk down High Street at, at Chalk Farm to the calf and gone in, and I'd not realised why people were looking at me. I'd forgotten what I was wearing. I've come out and bumped into a copper who's gone, excuse me, madam, um, you do realise that they can see everything through your dress. And I go, oh, sh- sorry, you know, um, whoops. He, he sort of put his cape around me and escorted me back up to the bar where I used to work, and it was like, yeah, um, whoops, I'd forgot. <laughs> It was quite nice of him to treat you, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it was quite nice. And I used to sort of say hello to him every now and again. So, so yeah, don't worry, I've got something decent on this time. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, it's good tell me, tell me more about, because um, obviously there's multiple levels of your non-conformity, obviously, mm. to go from quite a quite a blokey job and sort yeah. of car and panel beating mm. and then, not necessarily a, a, a female-oriented only role in making clothing. Obviously, there's loads yeah. of, you know, male, female, and all different genders and transgenders, what mm. have you, in the design industry. But at which point did you start to really come into your own with your trans side of your life? I mean, obviously, it sounds like it started yeah. really early on, but oh. at which point did you start to adjust yeah. and... I'd, have you? I'd had little excursions going out to London and that dress during the 80s and the early 90s. But basically, it really came about once I'd gone back to college. I'd, I'd done Bexley from 96 to 98. And then 98, I went to Kayad. And it was from that point on, from, from 98 onwards, that I really, I thought, this is somewhere where I actually belong. And being in a, a full, full-blown art college that Kayad was at the time, which is now called UCA, um, they, they were completely non-judgmental. The, the lecturers were quite au okay fait with it. They, they didn't really mind whatever you were. So long as you did the work, they didn't really mind what you wore. Um, and we did have a few characters around. I mean, that, I mean that, I'd, I'd always dyed my hair anyway. It was mostly red and pink at the time. But, you know, I was wearing ski pants and, and eye boots to, to college and, and no one batted an eyelid. And, you know, I did used to wear reasonable amount of makeup at times but you know i mean my lecturer sheila who was sort of a friend of mine um who was our pattern lecturer she said I'm, i don't really mind or care what you look like so just so long as you get the work done <laughs> you know that was it and yeah it was good fun and i felt really at home down there i really really it did must have been quite a change for you to feel that feeling of being around people that were were non judgmental. Mm. Um, 
I think I think a lot of, uh, and I don't know if you agree with me on this or not. I think a lot of non-conformists are kind of often spend a lot of time trying to find their tribe, and it sounds like mm. you found it there. Yeah, I I did. Yeah. I, I basically with Fiona and a couple of the other girls that I met at the time, and they were girls. <laughs> um, we we created a little group and and there was about five or six of us in the group and yeah we sort of used to have lots and lots of different ideas and things we experimented i mean there's a, um, a girl called suzanne who's a really good friend of ours still she went to school or she went to college one morning with what what i can only describe as was like a sort of a motorcycle chain down her back and about six or seven pairs of tights wrapped around her waist you know um she looked a bit different at times <laughs> you know, yeah, it's just sort of one of those things. You know, art college is one of those places where you experiment a lot and people were experimenting a lot. Yeah, it was good fun. Experimentation is always a good thing. I think it leads to so many amazing things. Yeah. So um, tell me more about the fact that you were, obviously your site was starting mm. to go and mm. how you dealt with that and, and mm. what sort of impact that had on you. My sight's always been a problem. I, I have um, a hereditary eye disease called RP, which is short for retinitis pigmentosa. The particular strain I've got is what's called acute dominant, which is the most aggressive form there is. There's three forms. There's acute dominant, recessive, and uh, what they call the X gene, which only affects boys. Mine, I've, I've lived with it all my life. I was diagnosed with RP when I was around about eight, nine years old. And up until the time... I got into my 30s, I was okay. It had damaged the peripheral field of my sight, so I couldn't see out the side of my eyes too easily, which caused problems, obviously, with riding bikes and driving cars. But it didn't manifest itself really badly until I was into my 30s, which is why I stopped driving, because it was getting too dangerous. And then I was okay until I got to 98, because we didn't realize it at the time, but I, I'd started to create cataracts because I wore contact lenses. And Moorfields Eye Hospital, who I've been under most of my life, um, said the cataracts were bad enough that we could actually operate on you. So 99, I had cataract operation on both eyes, and that gave me back crystal clear sight, which was brilliant. Because I remember the morning I came home from hospital, my hair, I'd only just dyed it bright pink again. It was flamingo pink. And actually looking in the mirror at my my, um, hair when I took the bandages off that day, it was absolutely stunning because, you know, it was... Like it'd been a fog around, which I hadn't really noticed because my eyes were so bad at the time. And then having the surgery done, it was like, wow, <laughs> I could actually see what people meant about the color of my hair at the time. And it was quite fantastic. Oh, had you not seen it for that long? Wow. Well, the problem was my wow. eyes were very misty because of the cataracts. And once I'd had the surgery done, I got full color back. It was fantastic being able to see all the colors again. They were there, but they were just yeah. sort of very muted. The thing with the eyesight was, once I'd had the cataract surgery done, I was okay from 99 right through till roughly about the end of 2007 into 2008. And then we don't really know why, but it's part of RP. My sight cracked up completely and I, I started to lose it in largest chunks. It, it just sort of blurs out. Your, your vision starts to go grainy and blurred and then eventually you just lose it. So how did you cope with that in relation to the fact that you have a what appears to most people a very visual career and capability how, how have you dealt with that I've, I've I've always been a very sort of creative person in the sense I love color things like that with the cars I was always painting you know candy apple paint and metallics and things like I said I've got a, a sort of a visual photographic memory so 
I've always been around sort of sketching, drawing, painting, anything like that. I've done quite a lot of landscapes and bits. I'm reasonably good at drawing figures, although Fee's better than me. <laughs> and it, it just sort of, as I went back to college, I, I just sort of carried on with the skills and refined the skills. But I don't know why. I have a like a 3D spatial memory. So combined with the graphic side of things, being able to remember colours and places and textures and things like that it, it all feeds in although i can't actually see if you tell me what the color is like a bright bright fire engine red and it's a, a say a silk dress i know what you mean i know what it feels like i've still got a complete memory of it in my head and it is quite fascinating because a lot of people can't figure out how i do it but i've, I've got sort of sensory touch for for texture and and i remember what the colors are and it's just fantastic i find that Absolutely fascinating. Mm. I, th- I remember the moment that I met you and <laughs> you, you and Fiona introduced yourselves mm. and it was revealed very quickly that you were this amazing, you know, you created and, and designed the a beautiful mm. and amazing uh, fetish wear and, yeah. and different things like mm. that. And then you told mm. me, you know, not, you know, obviously you were trans <laughs> and that sort of became quite quickly but the thing was you said and I'm blind (laughs) holy shit was amazing um for me I think that's one of the most incredible stories you know uh and and quite amazing categorically so many things have formed you to be the non-conformist you are today who from the moment I met (laughs) both of you I thought was absolutely amazing Mm. So um, one of the yeah. things you talked about, uh, obviously, was when you got to the university side of things, you, you obviously started to notice that there were other, others out there that were nonconformists like yeah. you. Who were those square pe- pegs and round holes that you noticed and how had they coped with their nonconformity, do you know? It's a tricky one. I mean, I've, one of the people that I've always thought was a, a definite nonconformist and he's definitely a um, square peg and round hole was, was um, Malcolm McLaren of the Sex Pistols. He sort of fits the bill. He's one of those people that I've always looked at and thought, yeah, not every aspect of his life's ever been brilliant, but he was the one who pushed Vivian Westwood into making certain clothes and that for the various groups like the Sex Pistols and Adam and the Ants and stuff. He was also a very gifted, sort of charming person. and He could charm the pants off a donkey, you know. <laughs> he was really good at getting what he wanted. Vivian Westwood also is one of those people that I've always looked at her and thought, I can't remember whether I actually went to sex when it was sex or whether it was seditionaries, but it was at the shop at the time. And I remember thinking, yeah, some of this stuff in here is extremely off, you know, off the off base. It's, it's so different, but people will wear it. And, and I just loved it. And, you know, I've still got a memory of Vivian Westwood turning up to meet the Queen in, in a certain lace dress with a couple of very delicately placed little, um, I think they were petals in the dress originally. And I, I can remember the <laughs> smile on the Queen's face and they were both sort of like, yeah, no one's ever, I mean, the press photography of it was, was brilliant at the time. You know, Vivian had the, the, the audacity to wear that dress to go and see the Queen to get her OBE and it was like, mm, yeah, not many people would have done that. <laughs> <laughs> But I, I, I yeah. do remember Malcolm McLaren. One of one of his most famous quotes, I think, was that there was no such thing as bad publicity. There is only publicity. All the time you're in the newspapers, people are reading about you and you're there. And that's it. That's one of those things I've always remembered about him. And um, anybody else that's kind of throughout yeah. your life that's kind of – or even people you knew? That's the trouble. Being the way I am, I haven't had that many friends – 
that I would have said were nonconformists. I've, I've had a couple of trans lady friends, sadly no longer with us. One of them was very, Mel was, she was a very sort of outspoken, she was transgender, but if I said that she used to walk around sort of King's Cross in a rubber dress in broad daylight, <laughs> she had bright orange hair most of the time. Yeah, she was a very out there kind of person. And she, she taught me a few things about life and men and avoiding them and things like that. Yeah, <laughs> unfortunately, sadly, she passed away a long time ago. But she did talk, teach me a, a few good lessons about things like that. A lot of that, yeah, they? this is the trouble. I mean, there are people that I've I've looked at like John Paul Gaultier and Damien Hurst and others, which they're artists or fashion designers. But one of my favourite ones, I wouldn't have said he was conventionally a nonconformist, but I like the actor Steve McQueen because most of his life he spent in and out of um, care homes in the States when he was in his younger days. That's how he got into films because it was, if you don't stop doing what you're doing, you're going to end up in jail for the rest of your life. And somebody gave him a break and said, look, we give you a part in a, in a film called The Blob when I think he was about 15 or 16 years old. And that was the beginning of his career. I didn't know he was in yep. The Blob. I remember yeah, watching Steve McQueen's in The Blob. <laughs> no He's very Amazing. young. But the, the thing with Steve McQueen was he hated authority and discipline and if you watch his films i mean my favorite film is always going to be bullet or the great escape but the thing is the whole point of bullet was it was a cop film but he didn't want to do it and they said well look if we put a car chase in the middle because they knew he was a racing driver he loved playing with cars and they managed to sort of get him around to it and basically the whole film basically sent around centers around the car chase there's, there's no real much of the cop in it at all. <laughs> it's just it's just him and the Mustang and the Charger chasing each other, which is what he wanted. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Mm. Oh, that, yeah, I've ne- I never mm. knew that. It's quite interesting. Mm. So um, we're going to start having a, a, a chat now about that, the, the time at which you decided to turn your difference into a place of power, which is more around what you're doing with Wicked Waste. We haven't talked yeah. about that. So, you know, when we first met, your approach to the curveballs in your life kind of blew me <laughs> away. And although you're sort of legally blind, the fact that you've not let that get in the way of your love of design is really impressive. I really want you to talk more about Wicked Wastes, what you and Fiona are doing. Tell us more. Well, what we do is um, we, we set ourselves up to be what we basically consider ourselves to be is a bespoke design business come agency, I suppose. If there's a piece of clothing or an item of clothing or, or something of that kind that you want that you can't find anywhere for whatever reason, you've got our design skills to play with so we can make it for you. And I don't discriminate in whatever anybody wants, whether they're boy, girl, trans, anything. And we've made some pretty weird, fantastic stuff in the last 12 to 15 years. We'll we'll make anything in any material, providing we can actually get a hold of it. And we have done quite a few barking mad ideas. But what I wanted to do was put the spin of, I wanted to make it this quality, because there's an awful lot of clothing out there, which purports to be sort of different, but you can only wear it two or three times and it falls apart. I just wanted to be able to make people stuff that they've got to spend a fair bit of money on it. But the thing is, it's like the difference between buying a Mini and a Ferrari. If you really want something as gorgeous as a Ferrari, unfortunately, you're going to have to pay a fair bit of money for it. You know, it's it's one of those things you get what you want. It's a, it's a bona fide sports car. You can make a Mini look like it by putting flash paint and wheels on it, but it won't be a Ferrari. And it's the same with our clothing. You can go out and buy a leather skirt, which looks the part, but 
it probably won't be because it hasn't got what you want on it. Where with us, we can make you, say, a leather skirt that fits your waist properly, fits your hips. We can put studs all over it. We can put a silk lining in it. You know, we can generally customise it to whatever you want. And, and that's the essence of what we do, really. I won't discriminate against anybody. So if you know, we get guys who want skirts, we get women who want mm. harnesses and things. <laughs> it's quite interesting. It's never a dull moment. No, I can imagine. I mean, some of the pieces that I've seen you make, like just recently, even mm. the um, the beautiful pink PVC raincoat, for mm. example, really absolutely amazing. What I think is also interesting, you and I have had a chat about as well, is your understanding of when somebody is wanting to transition into the trans world a little bit more, you've got such a good understanding that you can educate them on that and help yeah. them with that yeah. transition and wear it and all that. Talk, talk to me more yeah. about what you can do to help people that are wanting to take a change or do something different. I, I do get a lot of people that come to us because they're on the edge of coming out. So they, they sort of, people, a lot of the guys who cross-dress, they generally start off sort of indoors at home. And then when they do get the urge or they, they decide that they do want to make that transition and go out into the world, most of what they buy that they wear indoors, you, you just can't walk down the street in it. So they've then got the problem of trying to find clothes that look the part. And this is where I sort of come into it in the sense that, you know, I, I'd advise them on, you know, you don't put that blouse and that skirt together or you, you definitely can't go out in that dress. So. I give them advice on on what to wear and how to look, and and trust me, some of them do look really bad. <laughs> I, I don't know whether it is it's it's a it's a male thing about when they first start sort of cross dressing, they've got an inbuilt idea of what they think they should look like, which an awful lot of guys look. They go for long hair, extremely big boobs and big bums, and very high heels. The problem is you can't walk down the high street like that, or someone's going to have a go at you. <laughs> so it's it's sort of you know it's quite amusing, but. The sight of someone who's six foot five in five inch heels and a very, very, very short PVC miniskirt, it still makes me laugh at times. No, it's it's, it's quite interesting that um, whole way that their journey's needing to take. To your point, it's like at the beginning, there's that question. They don't even know quite how to, to do it. And I think one of the things that Wicked Waste brings beyond its ability to design and create bespoke mm. pieces whether that be for fetish wear, whether that be to uh, dress somebody that's in a transgender uh, situation or whether that is the steampunk, which we haven't even talked about yet, or whether or not that is for somebody like me who, okay, I'm nonconformist in some way, but I'm pretty, you know, average <laughs> in others. You know, the type of clothing I wear is probably pretty boring compared to what you guys can make, but I know that you can make some things still oh, yeah. for me. Um, i.e. PVC and the what it, all those kinds of things. So I think it's quite quite interesting. But I think what you bring to the table is more than the creativity and the design. I think there's an understanding that you bring to the yeah, table, um, which is really yeah. interesting. What I try and do is, I think possibly it's part of my my the ideology of being nonconformist. I don't judge people. Um, most of my friends within the fetish scene don't judge me. So. That, that sort of it, it helps that part go round, and it, it sort of comes out in the way that our ideology at Wicked Waste works in the sense that it's not just about making clothes. You know, I, I, I can try and advise people on what they can wear to this and what they can wear to that, but also, you know, it's sort of fetish or gothic or steampunk. 
they all come into a, um, it, it's more of a lifestyle, I suppose, more than anything. I mean, we, we get people that do steampunk, definitely. We get people that do fetish. I mean, if, if I had my way, I'd probably wear fetish gear 24 hours of the day, but I can't because it's not practical. You get a bit too sweaty in it, unfortunately. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, the steampunk look, definitely, that lends itself. You You can practically wear it all the time one one of the things we get a lot of at times is is um 1950s there's a lot of millennials now that want to live in the sort of 50s lifestyle or the 60s lifestyle and they want the clothes to go with it but they also need advice on you know sort of furniture and all the kind of things they put in their houses and that and it, it feeds back into it it's one of those things I love with Wicked Wasting. I spend quite a lot of time researching looks for people, but also researching all the other bits that go with it. And and it, it's quite interesting, you know, trying to find 1960s handbags or genuine 1960s shoes and stuff. And, and then with like the steampunk, messing it around and tweaking it and making it into our look, you know, it's quite fun. It is quite fun. And I think the stuff that you create yeah. is quite fun. And I think... The, the day the day and age is turning, I suppose, where, you know, the lifestyle in which you are living is now more and more being acceptable. Fetish wear is no longer necessarily an off topic. Mm. It's a lot more open, a lot more spoken yeah. about, which which I think is a great thing. It's almost like Wicked Waste is about to come into its own, which I think is absolutely, yeah. absolutely mm. fabulous. So with regards yeah. to that, what is it that you and Fiona are wanting to achieve with Wicked Waste? Where do you want to take it? What, I, what we'd really like to do is we started off predominantly as a fetish business, making a lot of PVC and leather and bits and pieces like that. What I've always really wanted to do with Wicked Waste is to get us to a point where you could sort of consider us as a, as a label. In, in a way, a bit like Vivian Westwood did with Red and Gold, but more, I'd, I'd love to be... One of my, my favourites is um, a, a designer called Balenciaga. I, I would love to have something like a salon, you know, that is a house of wicked wastes, if you like, for argument's sake. But where oh, you know, it would be amazing <laughs> where you could just have sort of people come in, we show them some of the bits and pieces we do, and then, okay, fine, we can make it in leather, rubber, PVC, we can do it in satin. You know, it was just, you know, we dress them and then they can go out into the world and wow people. I'd love to be able to do that. Well, I'm looking forward to the day mm. that that happens <laughs> because I think mm. the things that you and I have talked about with regards to your design, it's more than clothing. It's more than design. Mm. It's, it's, mm. Uh, it's yeah. art, you know, mm. and I think the ability to be able to provide outfits for people that want to express mm. themselves is such yeah. a powerful Mm. positioning your business and mm. for wicked wastes to be. Yeah. Which is which yeah. is quite exciting. So that's the future of wicked waste and where you want to take it, which brings me on to my last question of the day actually, which is in your eyes, what what do you think is the future for nonconformists? What what, what does it look like? Mm. Big question. A tricky one. I think the way the world works at the moment, we're split in two. We've we've got the sort of You've got the nonconformists who I consider to be creative people. Without us being creative, it doesn't filter down into the mainstream. And you've got the mainstream of people, which they're not really sheep, but 
they they they're the taking an analogy from Fraggle Rock. Unfortunately, <laughs> they're the little doozers that actually create. They they're the ones that actually do the building. They're the ones that do the construction. But somebody somewhere, and that's people like us, have to do the design work and figure out whether this is going to work or not, and what's what what will what won't, and then do the design part of it so that you can then hand it over to them and do the production side of it. And and the two feed into each other. They need us, but we need them. And and this is the way the world's going. Um, I think the days of the big, vast multinational companies are slowly starting to come to an end. And we're going back more to a sort of an era of the, the pre-industrial age when there's lots and lots and lots of little people all making bits and pieces. And then one day, maybe, you know, we will all start the process of going up again and... But in the meantime, it's sort of it's our nature to create stuff and then other people will take that idea and water it down and make it more of a mass produced sort of thing in a way. Leading the way. Yeah. I like that. I like the idea of us as the yeah. non conformists leading the way. I mean, we've seen it throughout time, I suppose, yeah. and it's how, yeah. you know, states of life and and uh things have happened down yeah. through the century. So yeah. Look, I, I really enjoyed our chat today. Um, I'm really excited about the future of Wicked Waste, perfectly <laughs> timed for Pride Month, which is amazing. Yep. Really excited about talking about so many different things with you. And I obviously, we work together, so I'm looking forward to continuing yep. to work together. There's some fun things coming up in the future with some ideas we've, yep. we've had and okay. so forth. So, Thank you very much for your time. I've mm-hmm. really enjoyed it. I'm hoping and and looking forward to the future of seeing what you're going to do with your future designs about more people oh, yeah. hearing about you through me, <laughs> hopefully. exciting. And um, I'm wishing you and Fiona all the best with Wicked Ways because <laughs> I cannot wait to be invited <laughs> to the opening of the Salon of Wicked Wastes. I think that yeah. would be amazing. Oh. So thank you very much. That's for okay. Thank today. you very much, Lena. It'd be brilliant. And um, you'll definitely be on the guest list for the opening. Definitely. 